0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's Washington National Tax Practice. Our topic on this episode is a statement released on October 8th by the OECD in the G20, finalizing several key aspects of the two-pillar approach to tackling the challenges of the digital economy, commonly referred to as BEPS 2.0. In particular, we'll address the significance of the statement, some of its technical details, and the political and practical obstacles that remain to the widespread adoption of the new international tax system it contemplates. For this discussion, I am joined by two of my colleagues here at KPMG, Manal Corwin and Marcus Heland. Manal is the principal in charge of WNT and previously served in the Treasury Department, first as International Tax Counsel and then as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Tax Policy for International Affairs. During her time at Treasury, Manal was actively engaged in the original BEPS initiative. Marcus is a managing director in KPMG's WNT practice, and recently rejoined KPMG after serving as an advisor at the OECD on BEPS 2.0. Marcus has joined me on two previous episodes of the podcast to discuss the work at the OECD in April and July this year, but this is Manal's inaugural episode on the podcast. Manal, welcome to the podcast, and Marcus, welcome back. Thanks,
1: Thanks, Gary. Great to be here.
0: Let's start with some background. In July of this year, the inclusive framework of the OECD and the G20 released a statement describing the broad terms of an agreed upon framework for BEPS 2.0. Pillar one of this framework would create a new taxing right for market jurisdictions that expands beyond physical nexus in the arm's length principle. Specifically, a portion of an in-scope multinationals residual profit, so-called amount A, would be formulaically allocated to market jurisdictions on top of the amount allocated that jurisdiction under existing transfer pricing rules. Under the July statement in scope, multinationals were defined as those having over 20 billion Euro in annual revenue and a 10% profit before tax margin, which would focus amount A on a relatively small number, approximately 100 of very large and highly profitable multinational enterprises. After seven years, however, a lower revenue threshold, 10 billion euro would apply, assuming successful implementation, which would bring a much larger number of companies within scope. Pillar two would adopt a global minimum tax of at least 15% computed on a jurisdictional basis, that would be enforced through two interlocking rules, referred to as the globe rules. First, an income inclusion rule, or IIR, under which low-taxed income of a subsidiary would be topped up in the hands of its parent. And second, an under tax payments rule, or UTPR, which acts as a backstop to the IIR by allocating any top-up tax not picked up by an IIR, that is because the jurisdiction of a parent of a low-tax subsidiary has not adopted an IIR, to other members of the group through the disallowance of deductions. In addition, pillar two would introduce a treaty-based subject to tax rule or STTR, which would turn off treaty benefits for certain payments to related parties, including payments of interest and royalties, to the extent such payments are subject to a nominal rate of tax below a minimum rate. In July, it was agreed that the minimum rate for the STTR would be between 7.5 to 9%. As discussed at length in an earlier episode of this podcast, the July statement left many key design issues unresolved. In addition, not all members of the inclusive framework signed on to the July statement. Only 134 of the then 139 members signed as of the date of the statement, with notable abstentions of three EU countries, Ireland, Hungary, and Estonia. Nonetheless, the OECD promised that the remaining elements of the framework including an implementation plan, would be finalized in October. And now here we are. On October 8th, the OECD and G20 released an updated statement reflecting an agreement on BEPS 2.0 that 136 of the now 140 countries with the recent addition of TOGO and the inclusive framework approved. The only IF members that have not yet joined in the October statement are Kenya, Nigeria, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka. The difference 136 in October versus 134 in July reflects three additional countries joining the agreement, Estonia, Hungary, and Ireland, and one country withdrawing its assent, Pakistan. Significantly, all OECD, G20, and EU members, except for Cyprus, which is not an IF member, join the agreement. The statement targets a 2023 effective date for most aspects of both pillars with detailed rules to be developed over the coming months. Manal, there were many who hailed the OECD G20 statement in July as an historic agreement. How should we view this October statement? Is it a great leap forward or a small incremental step?
1: Yeah, thanks, Gary. I I would say it's somewhere in between. Um, The July statement was certainly significant perhaps historical, because it cemented a consensus on on the broad parameters of this two-pillar approach to reform among the majority of inclusive framework members. It was initially 130 members, eventually 134. And it was important because that consensus was faltering just before the new U.S. administration had come in, and it didn't seem possible a few months back. So it was an important step forward that there was a sufficient amount of countries united around continuing to move towards a consensus on these reforms. The October statement, in contrast, I would say is more incremental. It's really an update of the July statement that fills in the blanks on some key elements that were politically important to various members of the inclusive framework. And those include, of course, with respect to pillar one, settling on that 25% reallocation amount uh, agreeing that DSTs and other similar unilateral measures would no longer apply to all companies not just in scope companies after the enactment of pillar 1 and importantly um from a US perspective securing a commitment that new DSTs or other similar measures would not be enacted from October 8th to the date of enactment, so moratorium on new laws. With respect to Pillar 2, it was significant to get agreement on fixing the global minimum tax rate to 15%, so dropping the at-least language, expanding the carve-out for tangible assets and payroll costs, and then delaying the effective date of the under-tax payment rule. So those were all important areas of of getting agreement and moving forward they were all politically important so in the end i would say while the agreement sort of shows on these details it represents some incremental progress it is significant in that it was just sufficient to bring the eu holdouts for example into the fold so you you mentioned ireland hungary and estonia they were holdouts under in the july statement they've joined the october statement In addition, the progress was just enough to maintain momentum towards a sustainable consensus and importantly, to really buy more time to work out the details. And that's what's happening now. I do think it's important to remember here, however, that these statements are really expressions of intent. So the the countries that are signing on are expressing their intent to be supportive. They are political commitments. They are not legally binding at this point. So these next few months are going to be critical. With respect to whether these statements of intent and, and political commitment can be converted to binding legal commitments. And that's gonna require working out all the details of the model rules and implementation structures, which will create you know sort of further depth in, in, with respect to the political commitment and intent, you know, the meeting of the minds, if you will, on the mechanics of all of this. But also, importantly, we're going to see in the next few months the ability of of that political commitment to be converted into a legal commitment through domestic legislative and parliamentary processes in each jurisdiction. These processes are going to vary both in timing and complexity and could introduce additional politics, both connected to the agreement, but also disconnected from the specific reforms, but more related to the broader politics in any given jurisdiction. We can see that playing out a little bit in the US now in the EU. So in short, the statement represents necessary progress towards a final consensus, but there's still a ways to go before they conceal the deal here.
0: Thanks, Manal. And we'll return to the political and practical challenges to implementation later in this episode. But first, let's turn to the technical aspects of October's statement. Marcus, let's start with Pillar 1. What open issues from the July statement on Pillar 1 were resolved in the October statement?
2: So as Manal said, the statement in October was more of an, an update of the July statement. So in many places, The October statement simply confirms what was already in uh, that July statement. Most notably, it confirms and and finalizes that the scope of amount A is still limited to companies with 20 billion euro of revenue and a 10% profit margin, and that the revenue threshold will be reduced to 10 billion euro after seven years, assuming successful implementation. Another key point of confirmation was that the extractives and regulated financial services industry are excluded from the scope. In terms of the previously open issues that were resolved, I think a few of these are are worth um, highlighting. So, you know, first, it was agreed that those thresholds that I mentioned, the the 20 billion euro on revenue, the 10 percent profit before tax margin, those will be computed using an averaging mechanism rather than just looking at a single year result. This seems to be a direct response to business input, including a recent public letter from the National Foreign Trade Council that called for this type of mechanism to avoid multinationals coming in and out of scope from year to year based on aberrational single year results. Second, the quantum of amount A, as Manal mentioned, was finalized as being equal to 25% of residual profit, which is deemed as the profit in excess of 10% of revenue. Previously, the July statement said between 20% and 30%. So this previously open parameter has now been finalized as exactly 25%. To illustrate what that means, just assume a a multinational earns a consolidated profit before tax margin of 22%. That would mean for this multinational, that amount A is equal to 3% of sales, which is just the consolidated profit margin of 22% less 10% of sales multiplied by 25%. Finally, and quite significantly, the statement provides, you know, as uh, Manal said, for that moratorium on newly enacted digital services taxes and other relevant similar measures for all companies from October 8th, which was the date that the statement was released, and until the end of 2023. And this seems to deliver on a key priority for the United States to fend off any further proliferation of digital services taxes, and and other relevant measures. And this portion of the agreement seems to already be having some impact. For example, shortly after the statement was released, Canada announced that it would delay implementing its digital tax until 2024, whereas previously it was set to to come into force in 2022.
0: So there were quite a few key issues that were resolved. Any significant issues remain unresolved for Pillar 1? (laughs) Yes.
2: Yes. The statement that was issued was just eight pages long. So, you know, many details were left open for future resolution. In terms of the big ticket items, I would point to the elimination of double tax, the tax certainty process generally, and, and the specifics around the removal of existing uh, digital services taxes. So, starting with the elimination of double tax, th- there's a commitment reflected in the statement to eliminate double tax through. Uh, the credit or exemption method. But essential to achieving that is getting to an agreement on the rules for the identification of the paying entity. The statement says that the entities that will bear the amount a tax liability will be drawn from those that earn residual profit. And so there's two big questions here. One is, how is residual profit defined for this purpose? Is it based on an excess return on, say, local tangible assets and local payroll? The other key question is, in the case of multiple entities that are deemed to earn residual profit, which entity is amount A pulled from first? So in other words, there needs to be some sort of prioritization rule. And and how uh, these rules are ultimately finalized uh, would seem to have a a material fiscal impact on individual countries because it deals with which entity – and by extension, which jurisdiction uh, will be required to surrender profit to another country under amount A. And so this item has been assigned to the task force of digital economy for resolution. As far as the tax certainty process goes, the specifics around that remain unclear. And importantly, this is the carrot in the package for in-scope multinationals. The intent is that multinationals that are within the scope of amount A would benefit from dispute prevention and resolution mechanisms to avoid double taxation for both Amount A itself and other related issues to Amount A, including transfer pricing disputes. And that would be done in a mandatory and binding way. But, but many questions remain about how broadly, particularly the related issues uh, will be defined. And depending on how that's answered, you know, will obviously have a big impact for how much benefit multinationals ultimately derive from this new tax certainty process. So it's important to keep an eye on how that evolves. And then finally, with regard to the treatment of existing unilateral measures, the the understanding has always been that countries with existing digital services taxes in particular would remove those taxes pending an OECD agreement. And the key question is when specifically would those measures be removed? The statement is somewhat ambiguous. It talks about the timing of the removal being appropriately coordinated. And there is a sentence about transitional arrangements being discussed expeditiously. It's clear from public reporting that the countries with DSTs want to keep them until the time amount A is actually implemented, which could be 2023 or so. But we all know that the United States Trade Representative has concluded that those DSTs are discriminatory and currently has tariffs suspended until the end of November against several of our trading partners. So it's not yet clear if the language in the October statement about appropriate coordination is sufficient for the USTR to withdraw the threat of tariffs, that there seems to be active discussions ongoing between the administration and countries with existing DSTs to try to secure more concrete transitional arrangements to presumably satisfy the USTR. But no detail has been publicly reported yet. So that's a key remaining issue to watch. So as you can see, Gary, there are many issues left to sort out, lots of technical issues, and some more political in nature, including uh, the coordination of the removal of existing BSTs.
0: So let's move on to Pillar 2. What issues related to Pillar 2 were resolved in the October statement?
2: And then I'll briefly hit on this already, but most significantly, the statement finalized that the minimum rate would be exactly 15 percent for purposes of the globe rules, whereas the July statement used at least 15 percent. And it's been widely reported that deleting that at least phrase and settling on exactly 15 percent was essential for Ireland to join the agreement, which um, they did. The formulaic carve out was also finalized. This is similar to the exclusion that's provided for and guilty for 10% of tangible assets. In effect, excluding a certain deemed return from the reach of the minimum tax. The the statement confirmed that the carve out would ultimately be set uh, to a deemed return of 5% of tangible assets in payroll within a jurisdiction. But the statement finalizes that a 10 year transition period will be used in which the deemed return will be 8% of tangible assets and 10% of payroll. And then these returns would then taper down over that 10-year transition period. Notably, the transition period, both the length of 10 years and the deemed returns are more generous than the lower end of the range that was previously in the July statement. And here it's been reported that making uh, those changes was essential for some countries, including, uh, according to public reporting, Hungary uh, to join the statement. And then as it relates to the undertax payment rule, the the statement finalizes that uh, multinationals in, quote, the initial phase of their international activity will be excluded from the undertax payment rule for a certain period. And then the statement defines initial phase of international activity as those multinationals uh, with less than 50 million euro of tangible assets abroad and operations in no more than five other jurisdictions – This exclusion from the undertax payment rule is only available, though, for the first five years that a multinational first comes within the scope of the globe rules. So, you can see that the statement was focused on finalizing those key quantitative parameters that were previously open, such as the the minimum rate and and the carve-out percentages.
0: And what are the most significant Pillar 2 issues that remain unresolved?
2: So, as with Pillar one, uh, the statement you know is very brief, and so it's not surprising that there are many key details that are still unresolved. It's important to understand that everything in the pillar two globe rules keys off a jurisdictional effective tax rate calculation. Therefore, most of the key items relate to the specifics around that computation, specifically the income and taxes that go into that, uh, the numerator and the denominator of that fraction. At the most basic level, the OECD will need to finalize the denominator, which is the tax base. The statement shows agreement to determine the tax base using financial accounting income with agreed adjustments, but what are those adjustments uh, and and how will pre-existing losses be dealt with? That's another key issue. Similarly, the statement talks about mechanisms to manage timing differences, but what are those mechanisms? Is the numerator just cash tax and then a carry-forward approach is used to manage timing differences? Or does the numerator also include uh, deferred tax items? These are very significant items, and and how they are resolved will will make a big difference in terms of how Pillar 2 applies in in practice. On the undertax payment rule, the statement says that it will use an allocation key, but the question is, what is the allocation key? Is it intercompany payments consistent with the blueprint, or is it maybe headcount and tangible assets? Also, what happens if 100% of the top-up tax cannot be collected under the under-tax payment rule because, for example, there isn't enough deductions to deny? Does that remaining amount go uncollected, or is there a, a carry-forward mechanism to pick it up later? So, as you can see, you know these are also fundamental questions left to resolve in the under-tax payment rule. And finally, as it relates to the subject of tax rule, which, as you said at the beginning, that's the, you know the rule that turns off treaty benefits for for payments to related party. But, you know, the question here is, what payments specifically? that The statement says interest, uh, royalties, and in other payments, with the obvious question being, what is other payments? We, we know developing countries want to include services and, and capital gains, uh, but it's not clear if that would be acceptable to the broader inclusive framework. So that will need to be resolved. As you can see, you know, on the surface, Pillar 2 requires significant additional technical work. But from what we're hearing, Working Party 11 has made some pretty significant progress on many of these items, and now we're just waiting for that detail to be publicly released.
0: sounds like there are still a lot of important and difficult design details to be ironed out, Marcus. What is the OECD's proposed timeline for finalizing their plan and moving towards implementation?
2: The headline here is that the OECD maintained a 2023 effective date for Pillar 1, Amount A, and the Pillar 2, Income Inclusion Rule. However, the undertax payment rule was delayed one year, so targeting a 2024 effective date with respect to that specific rule. I think it's fair to say virtually everyone considers a 2023 effective date very ambitious. In, In fact, the statement itself says that. And it's notable that some countries have already publicly indicated that a 2023 implementation date would be challenging. For example, Switzerland publicly indicated that it would need at least another year to implement Pillar 2, which in its case may require a public referendum. In order to meet the ambitious 2023 effective date, the implementation plan calls for the detailed rules in Pillar 2 to be released in late November of this year and the detailed rules for pillar one to be released in early 2022. Uh, but all eyes are really on the U.S. You know, Most immediately the question is, will the U.S. follow through with making the proposed changes to Guilty and Beat to bring those rules more in line with uh, the agreement under pillar two? If that happens, that would seem to free up the rest of the world to move swiftly to implement pillar two, perhaps as soon as 2023. Similarly, I imagine the rest of the world is closely watching how and when the U.S. will implement amount A.
0: That seems like a really ambitious timeline. Let me uh, turn to Manal to ask, is is this at all realistic?
1: Well, it is definitely ambitious, no question. As Marcus outlined, you know, the, the first steps here is to get those open questions, those design details and the mechanics worked out and agreed at the OECD and then memorialized in a multilateral convention. So there's sort of a common understanding as to what's being implemented. And there's much work to be done. It is true that even though there's a lot of these issues you know, behind the scenes, some have already been resolved and maybe not yet released to the public. So let's assume they can get those details done by November, at least with respect to Pillar 2. The next step towards meeting this implementation timeline is then enactment into domestic law. The OECD itself has no binding legal authority over its members. It's just a platform for collaboration and achieving consensus on a set of standards. The implementation of those, the realization of this into law requires that each country, each member jurisdiction acquire or achieve legal adoption under their domestic processes, as we've said before. So the delegates that sit at the OECD, they represent um, each of the jurisdictions, and they have authority to make some of these political commitments. They don't necessarily have authority to deliver. And, and so, for example, um in the U.S., U.S. delegates to the OECD are Treasury officials. The U.S. Treasury has been very supportive and vocal in supporting the outlines of what is currently the Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 designs in particular, with respect to Pillar 2, Secretary Yellen and others have talked about the global minimum tax as being an important centerpiece for their global tax policy objectives. And we've seen them then take that a step further, incorporating it into the tax provisions of the administration's budget. All of that said, unless those budget provisions are picked up or those proposals, there's still a gap because a lot of the changes being contemplated that would align with Pillar 2, including bringing up the guilty tax rate and going to a country by country approach to guilty and then modifying the BEAT rules to align with the proposed Pillar 2 under tax payment rule, would require some sort of legislative action. On that front, what we see is how do you go from the, you know, sort of Treasury's wishes with respect to alignment and to actual law. We know that right now the tax provisions of a a reconciliation package are being negotiated. We still don't know the full scope or size of the tax pieces, but we have a window, at least from the Ways and Means Bill, into some of the provisions that the Ways and Means Committee at least is comfortable moving forward with. They didn't adopt all the proposals in the administration's budget- but with respect to alignment on Pillar 2, you do see provisions that would be consistent with a Pillar 2 global agreement. So the proposal includes raising the guilty rate, not as high as the administration had proposed in the budget in their green book, but higher than that 15% bogey, slightly higher. There is in the Ways and Means Bill a proposal to move to country by country, jurisdiction by jurisdiction, calculation of the guilty tax. And uh, again, while not picking up the administration's proposal to repeal BEAT and replace it with SHIELD, the Ways and Means bill proposes modifications to the BEAT rules that would bring them more in line with the outlines of an undertax payment rule contemplated under Pillar 2 with a grant of regulatory authority to Treasury to adapt those rules further. So at least with respect to the bill that we see right now that hasn't, of course, yet gone to the Senate or or gone through the full House, it does seem like there is sufficient, at least from a mechanical perspective, willingness to align with the global agreement. An open question, of course, is the issue of whether or not getting it passed all the way through, is if there's a willingness to do that ahead of the OECD timeline. So, while there is this 2023 effective date, the undertax payment rule is delayed right now till 2024. And there's some question as to whether or not enough countries will adopt income inclusion rules ahead of the incentive to do so because of the existence of undertax payment rules. The two are tied together, one, you know, the the one provides an incentive for the other. And there's significant concern that has been expressed by a number of folks on the hill that the US moves, ahead of what other countries do um, in a manner that would raise taxes and some of these provisions on U.S. companies before other countries have done the same in terms of getting up to the global min tax. So there may be a hesitation and there's certainly a conversation about the timing of the guilty changes right now. But at least for, in terms of mechanics, putting aside the timing, they seem there seems to be a willingness at least to consider the changes that would be necessary to get to alignment. In contrast, pillar one, there's silence, right? At the OECD, they are postponing the maybe model legislation with respect to Pillar One until uh, next year. But that does pose some challenges with respect to how and when this would get enacted in the U.S. So so far, we haven't seen language or proposals in either an, the administration's budget or or in any congressional provisions with respect to Pillar 1, and we do know that the conversation at the OECD and the interest in a number of the, uh, among the, uh, the inclusive framework, is that they see Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 as a package, and for some members, Pillar 1 is really more important to them than Pillar 2, and so again, eyes on the U.S. as to whether or not we can deliver, you know, a legislative commitment to both Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, and that's yet to be seen.
0: Yeah, let's focus a little bit more on the implementation of Pillar 1. Secretary Yellen has indicated that Pillar 1 is on a slightly slower track than Pillar 2 and that we shouldn't expect any attempt at implementation in the U.S. until spring 2022. How would this implementation even occur? Senator Pat Toomey and his Republican colleagues have insisted that the U.S. can adopt Pillar one only through the process of treaty ratification by the Senate. But if the path to implementation of Pillar one is treaty ratification, which would require approval of two thirds of the Senate, I struggle to understand how this is even remotely possible given the current political environment. Right now, I don't think you could get 67 senators to agree that babies are cute, let alone the complete overhaul of the international tax system. But Secretary Yellen has said there are a number of ways in which Congress could implement Pillar 1, suggesting that the administration doesn't consider the traditional U.S. Senate ratification process as the only pathway for adoption. Manal, could you unpack this debate for us? What other ways is Secretary Yellen alluding to?
1: Yeah, this is a really complicated question, and it has become politically controversial. But I think the best way to um, unpack this is to start with what is Pillar 1 doing? What is Amount A about? And you can think about it in terms of what does Amount A mean to what the the U.S.'s rights are to tax under Amount A? Um, and then what does Amount A require with respect to the right of other jurisdictions to impose the Amount A tax on U.S. companies. So if we start with the first one, amount A is a new taxing right that reallocates existing taxing rights by definition because it's new and it's an overlay. So here it's a new taxing right to market jurisdictions. It allows for taxation without regard to traditional nexus concepts under treaties you know concepts of permanent establishment or other domestic law provisions and without regard to normal rules for transfer pricing or attribution of profit so when you think about that then if it doesn't exist in current law there needs to be a change to current law to create that right so in the case of the US's right to impose amount A on non-US companies under our current internal revenue code the ability right now for the U.S. to tax non-U.S. companies is based on a concept. Let's put treaties aside for a minute, but just based on a concept of, is there a U.S. trader business and is their income effectively connected to that trader business? If there's a treaty between the U.S. and the relevant country, that standard moves up to permanent establishment and income attributable to the P.E. But either way, in order for the U.S. to have a new taxing right that doesn't exist under current law, that's a change to the Internal Revenue Code. That's a revenue provision that can actually only happen through legislation that originates in the House. So it is, in fact, not possible to create a new taxing right through a treaty mechanism. You need some legislation in order to create the right to tax under amount A. So that's one point. The second point is, With respect to countries where we don't have a treaty, once that new taxing rights created, that's fine, then IRS and Treasury can impose that tax. Where a treaty exists, there's an additional limitation. There's that P.E. standard that you agree to in treaties and income attributable to that P.E. Um, And so the, the U.S., in order to impose amount A, would need the authority to impose that tax, which comes through congressional action. And then the question is, what about the treaty limitation? And in general, with the in the U.S., um, it is possible. And again, not advocating for this, but we have rules that say that statutes and treaties are on the same legislative level, and we have a later in time rule. So, a statute that is enacted that is inconsistent with a treaty later in time. Has the effect of overriding that treaty unless there is a specific um, statement that the congressional intent not to override. There's two pieces to this. You need legislation, and you don't necessarily need a treaty change unless you do not want to override, and then you would have to amend. The second piece of this is what has to happen in order for other countries to be able to impose amount A on U.S. multinationals. Here again, Where there is no treaty, so a country where we do not have a treaty relationship, there doesn't need to be any legislative action in the U.S. for another country where we don't have a treaty arrangement to decide to impose tax on U.S. businesses under this new taxing right. They're free to do that. There's nothing that would stop them other than the existence of an international agreement. So that's important to distinguish. With respect to jurisdictions where we have a treaty, there would need to be the release of their obligation under that treaty. Which would have limited their ability to tax absent APE or income attributable to the PE in order for that country to be able to tax US corporations. And so the real question comes down to does that second release require an additional treaty, or can congressional action, a pathway to where Congress passes the right for US companies to impose amount A, an intent? To do that, notwithstanding, you know, other agreements, not because they intend to not honor their treaty obligations, but because 140 jurisdictions or wherever we are at that point have collectively agreed to change the path of international agreements. And in that process also provide the ability of other countries to do the same and giving possibly permission then for the U.S. Treasury and the administration to enter into executive agreements that memorialize the release of that obligation by other countries. That is a pathway. My sense is where that Treasury is exploring. There are those that um, feel strongly that that kind of executive agreement would not be appropriate in this circumstance. And that's really the debate. What is absolutely clear is that any executive agreement that is to happen does need to have There has to be authority for that, a statutory granted or constitutionally granted authority in order for Treasury to enter into executive agreements. But the path could be that Congress in enacting legislation to implement amount A may be able to grant that executive authority. So I'm sure that was clear as mud. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it, it, it's as clear as it's going to get with the uh, Legislative and Treaty Affairs. So the implementation path in the U.S. is far from certain, but as you've already mentioned, we also need to talk about political pressures around BEPS 2.0 and other jurisdictions. As I mentioned in my opening remarks, Estonia, Hungary, and Ireland, which were previously significant holdouts, have now agreed. Of the plan and all the members of the OECD and G20 and the countries of the EU other than Cyprus have joined the October statement. Although complete consensus hasn't been achieved, what is the significance of Ireland, Hungary, and Estonia joining the deal? And will Cyprus's lack of participation in the inclusive framework present an issue for ultimate implementation?
1: Well, I think it was very significant that they were able to get Estonia, Hungary, and Ireland on board. It was important. Um, Cyprus has expressed concerns. They're not a member of the inclusive framework. But, you know, our colleagues, uh, our European colleagues um, tell us that um, there it, it does seem likely that they will be able to get them on board. Um, it is relevant because I think the EU ideally would like to achieve and implement Um, these pillars through EU directives, um, particularly with respect to pillar two. Um, And you do need consensus to do that. There were other avenues being considered for implementation at the EU, but I think at this point, it does seem like it will be possible to achieve it through a directive and so that they'll be able to, to move forward.
0: Multinational companies are experiencing an unprecedented amount of tax uncertainty these days. Between potential tax legislation here in the U.S. and BEPS 2.0 at the OECD, we may be on the precipice of an entirely new international tax system. Marcus, what should taxpayers be doing today in anticipation of the possible adoption of BEPS 2.0?
2: Well, first, I think considering how to engage in the process – As the OECD works towards finalizing the rules, particularly all those key open technical issues that I mentioned, there will likely be either formal or informal opportunities for engagement both at the OECD or with Uh, individual implementing jurisdictions. So I think that's the first is, you know, looking for opportunities to help shape some of the outcome of how those key open technical items are ultimately resolved. Second, I think it's also important to model and assess what the impact of of these various reforms would be. The, The reforms being considered are, you know, very complicated and potentially will intersect with existing domestic rules. It'll be important for multinationals to use uh, appropriate uh, tools and models to you know to assess the impact and evaluate interdependencies and prevent double taxation or other inadvertent impacts so modeling seems really important here. And and typically the modeling can be used to highlight the issues that are most in focus for a multinational that they can then use to help inform uh, the specific items that I, uh, you know, to, to then go and engage on. So I think those are probably the two most important things is consider engagement and then uh, doing modeling to help um, inform which items to to engage on.
1: Any final thoughts, Manel? Look, I, I agree with with Marcus, yeah. these are the this is the focus um for business right now. The end of this story is far from predictable still. I think the fact that they are continuing to stay together, at least as an inclusive at the inclusive framework level is very important. the politics that's going to happen in the different um, jurisdictions, and I think particularly the uncertainty with uh, the outcome of the u s. negotiation, which is i which i as I said at the beginning, is not just about this global process, but involves lots of other issues. We're going to see that play out at the EU as well. There's got There's a lot of issues, important issues at the table that could be part of a negotiation that will get them to adopting certain aspects of this. So th- this next few months will be really, really important. And in particular, as we see the outcome of the US legislative process with respect to the Build Back Better plan and whether they can get Agreement just on that will let us know, will give us a lot of insight into how successful the global process can be.
0: Thanks, Manal, and thanks, Marcus, and thank you all for joining us today. Tax continues to make headline news, whether it's the global tax agreement at the OECD or the proposed tax legislation, the Reconciliation Bill promises to be an exciting fall and likely winter, particularly here in the U.S. As we wait to see whether Congress can pass the infrastructure and the reconciliation bills, the latter of which could lead to another round of dramatic changes to the U.S. international tax system. So please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on these latest developments. In the meantime, if you're interested in a deeper dive on the October statement and BEPS 2.0 in general, I encourage you all to register for KPMG's upcoming BEPS 2.0 update webcast on October 21st. Until our next episode, take care.